Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition, to win at work, drive your career forwards, and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Munro, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people, and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. So hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. I have a special treat for you. We have a returning guest, John Gruder. So um, I want to say um, thank you, John, for coming back on to talk to us all about, um, well, a few different topics, to be very fair. Um, but it's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, good to be back, Anna. Thanks for having me. Um, so for those of you that don't know, who haven't heard any episodes of John's before, well, firstly, the first thing I want to say is obviously go back and listen to them. So some great insight um, on leadership specifically. But John is the Assistant Professor in Organisational Behaviour at Maynooth University in Ireland. Um, and so today, and certainly over this session, I want to sort of dig into the concept of conflict, particularly conflict during change, because um, as you go through a change program, there is often issues that arise um, and areas where you might um, be working cross team or with individuals that you may not commonly work with. So I guess that's the first piece is that, are, you know, in terms of the definition of conflict within an organization, how do we how do we define that? What does that look like? Yeah, and I think that's an excellent question. Uh to ask oneself, what kind of conflict are we actually dealing with here? So whenever you're, uh, you know, when you're a leader of a team, or even if just as a team member, um, conflict is something we've all experienced. Uh, conflict is pretty much uh, all around us. Um, and uh, particularly so uh, at work, where we do spend a considerable amount of time engaging with people who might not necessarily agree with everything that we have to say, and neither should they, frankly. Uh, be quite boring otherwise. So the, uh, the first question is absolutely the, the right one. What, what is conflict? And when we think about conflict, we need to be sure that we can differentiate between uh, two main types of conflicts. Uh, one of them being a task conflict and the other one being uh, a relational conflict. So a task conflict is the most uh, prevalent. Um, types of conflict at work, uh, which is very simply defined as you have a group meeting and uh, there's differing opinions on what to do next. What's the next step? Well, you know, maybe there's uh, a few options on the table and we need to decide, should we go with option B or option option A or option B? Let's just make it very simple, two options. Uh, and you say it's option A because, and you might have some arguments and another person says, no, 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 that's all wrong. We need to go with option B because so and so. So what is important here is that to recognize that this is not a conflict that is uh, a clash of personalities or, you know, these people don't like each other, but this is about they differ in terms of how to proceed with this task, with this decision. And this is actually a good kind of conflict. So this is what you would like as a leader. If you have 
you know, just a group of yes sayers basically who say, oh yeah, let's go with that. That 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 really encourages groupthink, and groupthink is, you know, a really uh, bad. <laughs> it's, it's a phenomenon with really some bad uh, outcomes potentially because it signals that you don't really care that much uh, as a team member, or it could so you go with what the group says or the majority says, like yeah yeah let's let's just do that, or it signals that you don't feel safe enough to openly, publicly disagree with what the group or the majority, a group majority thinks. And uh, you don't want that, right, as a leader, particularly not when, uh, like you were saying, Hannah, earlier, you know, during times of change where there's a lot of, a lot more uncertainty than usual. This only adds to it. So you don't, you don't want to create an environment where uh, not only a lot of uncertainty and we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, maybe the company is being, you know, bought by another company and, and they're trying to integrate it into the parent company. But on top of that now, um, you know, we have all these decisions to make. Let's just, you know, uh, go with whatever the group thinks is best. Uh, this is not the time to uh, foster that kind of environment. Or it's also not the time to foster an environment where people don't feel safe enough. Uh, you know, they actually disagree. It's like, but I, I, I shouldn't say that. I can't say that because I'd be disagreeing with my boss or I'd be disagreeing with that team member who, who always dominates any meeting because they're a very social person, very extroverted maybe. Uh, but you might have some very good ideas, so you should speak up. But it is not, uh, I, I don't want to say that it's on the employee. That, well, she should have spoken up or she should have spoken up. It's their fault. No, no, it's, it's, it's uh, who is responsible here, right? And it's the leader. So the leader sets the tone. So that's really a responsibility that we like to see uh, leaders take seriously. And from the very beginning, when a group is formed or when a new team member joins, that this is reiterated, that this is, uh, you know, a, a place where you feel free to disagree uh, and feel free to disagree actively, uh, engage with others. And only through conflict uh, can we actually get to be a good team? I mean, I teach this to my students all the time. You know, m most people and executives, including, they don't like conflict. I mean, who likes conflict, right? Um, they would like, we would all like to see less conflict, particularly at work. So, uh, so how can you tell me then that conflict is a good thing? Well, this type of conflict is a good thing. Uh, and only by getting, you know, as a team, you need to have some level of trust. And with trust, I don't mean to trust your team members to take care of your children for an afternoon, but maybe, you know, to trust them enough to want to engage in this group task and this group decision uh, that has to be made. And that's a very, that's a foundation that you need. That's your, that's the bare minimum. It's this trust that we will try to work together, right? Even if you don't know each other. The next level is conflict. <laughs> so as soon as you have some trust, as soon as you have some understanding that we're a group, we're a team, uh, and we can talk about the differences between groups and teams. That's a different thing. Um, you know, we're committed and we, we need to work together. By the way, I, I don't agree with you fully here. That's literally the next thing is conflict. And only the, the, the best teams are the teams that get through conflict. And the really long-term, you know, high-performing teams are the ones that have learned how to deal with conflict. And they don't shy away from it. They fully embrace it. And to them, it is not, uh, you know, something negative, but they recognize this is, you know, most conflicts are about the task. There are some conflicts that are personal and or relational in nature where you really cannot get along with another person, just a clash of personalities. You really, 
as a team leader, the only thing you can do is try to keep these two people apart from each other as far away as possible, you know, from each other, um, assign them different responsibilities and so on. But those are luckily very isolated cases. The vast majority of cases, it's just people that care enough to say, no, I don't think we should do it this way. Let, let's, let's look at it another way. So conflict is absolutely necessary. If you don't get through conflict, you will not have a performing team. That it, it starts and it ends there. So. so that's a really interesting perspective on conflict because that's a very positive, especially with task orientated, that it's actually conflict's a good thing. Are there any yeah. types of task orientated conflict that aren't good? Because sometimes, so if, and, it, and I guess just to follow that up, if conflict is such a good thing, why, why is it quite scary, you know, to both yeah. feel it, um, but also give it? So, you know, where are the challenges there? Right. So uh, maybe one example of a task which seems to invite a lot of conflict, um, but that is because of the nature of the task and how, how it uh, presupposes to deal with conflict, which is brainstorming. Okay. So brainstorming is not a task where you think of, oh, conflict. Like that's not, it's not a debate. It's not a discussion. It's like any idea goes. Let's just, you know, throw them out there. Uh, so this is a, the traditional view of brainstorming, right? Um, which just doesn't work. I mean, it's very, very just, just bad. Like stop doing it. Um, so, and it's bad for several reasons. One of them being conflict, but, um, it's bad because you are basically saying any idea, every idea is the same in terms of every, every, there's no bad idea, but there's plenty of bad ideas, right? So we know that. Uh, and then the other thing is it invites conflict because you're trying, you're telling people, you cannot actively disagree with an idea because every idea is good. So just suppress whatever emotion you have that you really want to say, like someone says, oh, we should try that. And you know for a fact that the client doesn't want that. For example, you might have had that conversation. But instead of you being encouraged to say, uh, wait, I've actually talked to the client and that's not going to work because they had some prior experiences in another company and that just didn't work out for them. Uh, you, you are not allowed to say that because every idea goes, let's just put them on the board. Uh, and then what happens? Because conflict is suppressed as an option to actively disagree, uh, you have bad ideas on the board, number one. You have most ideas coming from a few select people who tend to, to talk a lot, be very extroverted. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's, you know, the point is that if you want to get diversity and, and as many perspectives as possible, you should encourage all team members to participate. And that means sometimes that you know everyone needs to uh, at least get the opportunity to, 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 to speak their mind. And that can include disagreeing. And there's nothing wrong with that, with a disagreeing part. So that's just the first type of task where, you know, you, I was thinking of like, what, what tasks are particularly, you know, strongly associated with, with conflict, albeit it's not a task that we tend to cognitively associate with conflict right away, right? If I say, think of a, uh, a difficult, interaction you've had at work you probably won't think of brainstorming um but it is one of the, the tasks that that uh, comes up a lot and um, explains so many decisions that are made in the end because you go back and you're like who proposed this to begin with this is not a good idea why did we even consider this um and it's probably because a lot of people who wanted to actively speak up were discouraged from doing so uh, just in terms of the nature of the task yeah I'm going to take a slightly off route because 
Um, I, you know, I'm going to circle back to my original question, actually. But in terms of brainstorming, so I was always taught to to do brainstorming in a way that allows everybody to to put ideas and thoughts down in mm-hmm. a sort of a measured way. Do you like? So I was taught, whether rightly or wrongly, that you would go around and get a load of ideas, share them, then go back and do another round, and then constantly feedback and until you sort of build on each other's ideas. So it's more about shared learnings. Is that not a good approach and if so how would you recommend coming up with ideas and how are the ideas um are you writing this down are you speaking this out yeah loud writing or? them down like you write okay. them down share them go back yeah. to the your your thinking time you know write them down again share them again yeah so uh, definitely the the way to go is to write it down individually mm-hmm. um and um i believe we discussed that on, on another episode mm-hmm. in the past um some experiments that were done in the 50s, 60s. So to write it down, which is anonymous also, um, oh, okay. and it, it doesn't have, um, so don't write down, you know, John's ideas and then <laughs> underline it and then write one, two, three, but, you know, just write them down without associating your name with it. And uh, then they can all be you know, brought together. And yes, you could put them all up on the board, if you like, at that stage already. And then you could uh, discuss and think about, Okay, which ones of these not are most feasible, but which ones are least feasible? Like which ones we know that don't work or we've tried them in the past and that's not really our strength. So we need to play to our strengths. So let's, let's focus on, you know, these other three instead of the first three. So, and then you could go back and, uh, if you have the time that is to, to actually think about this on an individual basis. Uh, and then, um, you can maybe make a selection or rank them individually and then you can again collect that information combine it and see okay what's the number one ranked uh idea or or option that we should consider you could do that um and i think that's a, that's a very much a, a good approach a feasible approach uh but the key component here is there's different variations that you could do but the key component would certainly be to write it down individually uh, anonymously because even when you write it down if it's associated with your name a lot of people might uh, feel like, you know, well, I don't want to say anything that, that I know the group will go against and the group will disagree. So I'm not going to put that down, even though you're writing it. So anonymously, uh, doing it anonymous, it's very easy, right? I mean, you can do it um, uh, digitally or you can do it um, in the form of an anonymous survey or you can do it in a piece of paper if you're meeting in person. So it's really like low tech uh, solution here, but it, it does it does work quite well. Jar in the middle, post-it notes in the jar, and then read them out, I'm guessing. You could do that as well, yeah. <laughs> oh, going definitely old school. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, and you're right. You said you, interesting comments. So you did say that brainstorming is not something we would normally associate with conflict. I wouldn't have said that brainstorm is a conflict exercise, and, and I wouldn't have any kind of fear about going into a brainstorming conversation. So so why is it that certain types of conflict you get that feeling in your stomach or you're you get more worried about than others? Even you know Right. I think what's important to distinguish here is that to you it's not uh to me neither. It's not uh you know something I would associate with a conflict, but I do know that it can be for a lot of people. Uh and those are the individuals that might be a bit less extroverted and uh you know, less, um, a bit more afraid to, to speak up and uh, to actively disagree. They are very likely to be the people who will agree with you, 
um, who generally will agree with you when they think that you're onto something. Um, and you do need their support as well, of course. Um, but it is mostly a matter of, you know, why is conflict bad? Why do we cringe a little bit when we think about conflict and why do we hesitate um, to have to deal with, you know, to interact with that one team member who you know, we might have had conflict in the past. And, you know, because uh, conflict doesn't make us feel good, right? It makes us feel negative emotions, uh, anxiety, fear, uh, but also it could be other things like anger, um, just feeling that you're not, not, not reassured uh, when you're talking to certain uh, members in your team, perhaps. Um, and that can be really uh, debilitating. So we don't want to feel that way. We, we want to, uh, you know, feel like uh, this image that we have in our minds of our ideal self. Uh, and uh, we want to portray that ideal self, of course, so especially in a, in a professional working environment. So uh, this is only natural to feel that, well, here is something that I know doesn't make me feel good because it hasn't made me feel good in the past. Uh, and so, of course, it's not the natural inclination for people to fully embrace conflict and to be all about it, you know. Um, and that's why it's so important that the leader sets the tone from the very beginning that, you know, this is, uh, this is a, a room where we can share ideas and you're expected to share um, whatever you think is best, even though you, you can disagree with the team. And, you know, to make it easier for people, have them write down ideas, for example, uh, or even have them write down why they think you know, option A or option B is the best. And then you just have uh, two piles of argument and you can weigh them against each other. So, you know, those are uh, ways of trying to maybe not fully embrace conflict, but the very least to cope with it and to deal with it in a more structured manner, to take away that anxiety and that uncertainty. Because another reason why conflict doesn't make us feel good is because anything can happen. Like someone might start yelling. Uh, and, uh, or I don't know, I mean, it could go further than that. You know, they might start throwing a chair or something. I mean, that's too much. <laughs> what but, kind of organizations I mean, have you worked for, John? Well, it does work. <laughs> well, you know, the stories that people tell are, are really illuminating, um, yeah. in terms of, you know, who are, what kind of people are in, in, in these leadership positions, in these companies that we know very well, you know, uh, in terms of a brand name and how come that is, I mean, it's not encouraged, obviously. I, I don't think it's actively encouraged, but it is allowed. It is yeah. tolerated that, okay, so this individual, this particular leader of a team, department, company, CEO, uh, has a history of uh, interacting with team members in a not so, you know, professional manner, uh, meaning maybe there's some yelling or there's some, some things that are, you know, uh, profanity in the office as well. Um, actually writing a paper on that with a colleague right now. Um, so there's many things that people might or might not find acceptable, uh, but the list is much longer in terms of what's tolerable, like what, you know, this person performs, this person is good at what they do, so we're going to forgive the other behaviors that they uh, exhibit. And most of the time, of course, as we can all imagine, I'm talking about male leaders, I'm talking about men, right? Uh, so they are there mostly the ones to uh, engage in, in those types of you know, really abrupt public display of negative emotion, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that um, female leaders do not engage in that. Of course, they they can, but it's just much less uh, the case uh, in terms of how that emotion is is portrayed. Very and, and that's a really interesting topic. So, do men and women 
tradition, obviously there's always the exceptions to rule. Do they approach conflict in different ways? Yes, I, I do think that uh, uh, there's a, so yes, the short answer is yes. So I, I would say that for men, it's particularly common when, when someone comes to you, uh, a team member comes to you and, and has some to share, you immediately jump into how do we fix this? Um, so this fixing mentality, like let's find a solution. Whereas in real life, uh, many times when a team member comes to you and tell you what has happened, for example, uh, they were con- confronted with uh, some sort of decision they had to make and they made a decision and this, is, this was the outcome. You know, you, you jump into, let's, you know, how do we fix this? But wait, maybe it doesn't even need fixing. So you can you sometimes create a conflict where there wasn't one. Like in your head, it's, it's a conflict that something needs to be solved. But in reality, it's actually, they already went through that. They already decided, they made a decision. You know, and they're just telling you about it, that this is what happens, so just so you know, so you're informed. So I do think men are more likely to uh, uh, to jump the gun there and you basically just jump in and say, okay, how do we fix this? Um, and that is, you know, the I think the mentality is also uh, that men look at conflict as, um, you know, something negative and something needs to be dealt with and needs to be dealt with right away, uh, immediately, and most likely involving some sort of abrupt uh, behavior that, no, we need to deal with it right now uh, and create a sense of urgency. And that is almost, almost never uh, required. And it's almost never required that you immediately deal with something right away. Uh, now, you know, of course, there can be those cases. And I'm certain that if you're in the hospital and uh, you're, 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 uh, you know, a surgeon has to operate on you, you would prefer for them to operate on you right away instead of waiting and maybe, you know, looking at different options. But the vast majority of the time, if we're not talking about these like really like emergency situations, it's not needed uh, that you, you know, jump in right away and, and try to deal with it, you know, uh, and sort everything out in, like, in one go. So take the time to take a step back. It's very, very difficult to uh, not disassociate ourselves from negative emotions that conflict brings about, but to accept them, to realize that these are normal. Um, that that everyone is feeling some sort of emotion. It could be fear, panic, or it could be uh, just anxiety, just uncertainty, um, or it could be anger that something was done that was not according to the way we do things. And uh, as a leader, you're you might be angry about. It. And it's okay to have that emotion. It's totally fine to have that emotion. So think about the other person's probably thinking or experiencing, rather not thinking, experiencing a similar emotion. Um, we need to be more accepting of ourselves and of other people. And that hopefully will allow us to take a step back and to think of conflict not as something that, how do we solve this right now, but how can we use this as uh, fuel for, you know, uh, solving issues in the future? So how can we learn to cope with conflict in a more structured way? But there are also some tangible learnings there for our team and also for for, for other teams in the organization as well. I mean, codifying this, this type of uh, knowledge, which is essentially what it is, is really extremely difficult. Um, but it is so, so important that leaders, especially after you've, you've completed a group project, you've, you've finished, uh, you've delivered, um, you know, uh, whatever you were working on to the client, things have gone well, to take the time to reflect uh, and take the time to reflect on what went well, what didn't go well, not with everyone else in the team, but just to, for yourself, first of all, as a leader, and that is really expected of you as well, at the very least it should be, that you then try to codify those experiences 
into uh, tangible learnings that other teams might benefit from, that you certainly will benefit from as well. You have other teams in the future, new teams will be formed and so on. Uh, but that is something that, you know, to, to take the time in a very busy world and uh, days that, that we all live through, right? It's difficult to do, but it, it really can, can have huge payoffs long term. And you talk obviously about taking a step back to assess the situation um, in terms of that conflict. But is there a way of structuring the way you deal with that conflict to to, to minimize, like you say, the esc- I, I I think escalation is the right word, the escalation into a, an unhealthy behavior so that we keep conflict. So just say the, you know, the, the outcome is there's two individuals within your team, both have differing views about how you should move forwards. Yeah. And you're the tiebreaker as the, the manager or leader. Right. So, or you, you want, you kind of want to bring them on board. You want them to both agree or at least come to some agreement around that. How would you approach that and manage that in a way that makes both of them f- feel like they've been heard and that, that you know, yeah. that it's been addressed in a way that, you know, gets the, the most positive outcome possible. Yeah, I think this will involve a uh, combination of a few things. So one is uh, what we spoke about earlier, which is like the setting the tone and uh, during the team meeting with other people present as well, other team members, I mean, uh, you set the tone and you say, well, this is uh, the task and this is the assignment, you know, that we have to uh, have to uh, work on and this is the deliverable the client wants, right? And then you have inevitably uh, some sort of disagreement, as really, I would argue you should. And... Um, and then now the question is, okay, so what, how do we do about this? If it becomes clear that, um, after, you know, you, you've gone through various options, you've, you've weighed arguments and, uh, other team members have taken, uh, a side. So they've decided either A or B. And, uh, these two individuals in your team still seem to be, um, you know, butting heads, then it might be a good time for a break and then a, uh, a series of a one-on-one conversations with each of them um not to scold them or anything like that but just to make them like you said huh, to make them uh feel like they they've been heard and to tell them that you know whatever decision that that we take as a as a team um i know i need you to uh to stand behind it i need you to be okay with it um and i don't want you to feel like you know you have to suppress uh, your emotions or you have to suppress your disagreement going forward or rather i would Quite the opposite. I would encourage you to continue um, and to voice your disagreement when, uh, whenever, whenever it is you feel that it is uh, relevant and, and appropriate, uh, in a professional manner, of course. So that way, at the very least, you can assure that they feel they've been heard. They have had a chance to uh, pitch, uh, let's say, uh, whatever uh, feelings or concerns they might have had one-on-one with you. And the other. You know, both of them know this. Both of them know that you're going to have one-on-one talks with them. And uh, if you, as a leader uh, or as a, as a group, uh, decide that, you know, we need to go with option A, it just makes more most sense right now. At that stage, you have already engaged with them. They've already been heard. It's, it's already been processed emotionally as well to some degree. It's not going to, it's very unlikely going to lead to this escalation. Um, that you mentioned earlier, because we, we already talked about this. Uh, so it's not going to be like, Ooh, surprise, you know, we're, we're not going to go with what you think because your idea sucks, you know, but rather we've had 
a conversation. Like we, you know, you've had a chance to, to voice your concerns, and um, you know, I've taken it on board and truly taken it on board and, and genuinely considered it. And for these reasons, we decided to go with the other option. Um, that's really important that people feel heard, people feel that their that their presence and their thoughts matter. Because if you do this a few times without consulting with them one-on-one, what's going to happen is one or the other or both uh, over time will uh, think that it doesn't really matter what I say. They're going to make a decision on, you know, whatever they want. And it doesn't matter what I say. So I'm not going to say anything anymore. Uh, and I'm just going to disengage from any, like whenever we do this type of activity, clearly it doesn't matter what I think. Why should I care? Yeah, let's go with whatever you think is best. Um, and that potentially can work for some time, uh, as in like, you know, nothing will, uh, explode or <laughs> nothing will like blow up in any way. But it's, it's, it can only lead to a deterioration in, in terms of, you know, this is not going to be the best possible, uh, solution or decision you could have taken as a team. And you're not going to be a high performing team over, over a long term. I mean, we need to realize um, a couple of things. Even bad teams can make good decisions. Okay. Right. It happens. It's mostly called luck. Uh, so <laughs> even when you disagree, but you don't say anything, you're like, yeah, whatever. Just, just do whatever you think is best. That can still be a good decision. I'm not saying that it's always going to be a wrong one. No, you know, people can, could have waited option A and B and, um, due to a matter of resources, chose A instead of B because B involves more strategic management, more, you know, uh, finding resource allocating, too much work. Let's just go with A. It could have actually turned out to be the best decision. But those are isolated cases. If you look, take a long-term perspective, a year, two years, five years, it's, it's, if you look back, it's just not going to happen. And then the other thing is good teams can make bad decisions also. So even when you have team members who are really committed who understand what conflict means and how we how they should embrace it and, and they fully do so and you decide on something on how to move forward that still could prove to be wrong in the, in the you know in the long in the, in the long term but that's the risk you have to take so in terms of probabilities i mean this is what i tell my students all the time it's, it's all about life is about probabilities right nothing is certain or uncertain except for death and taxes right so um we need to make sure that we have the probability in our favor so what can we do to maximize the chance that we make consistently good decisions in this team that is your goal as a leader that should be your goal the goal should not be to make the best decisions all the time that's not the goal that's really achievable because life happens and situational factors occur and you know, you could have planned to expand your company to three different geographical regions in the beginning of 2020. And then we all know what happened. So like, you know, these are things that are outside of your control. So instead of taking that approach, uh, you know, don't go for perfection, but, you know, strive for excellence. So try to do what you can uh, continuously over time to foster environments, which is supportive, foster environment where people genuinely feel heard and feel that their presence matters that their presence in, in and their disagreements including that includes their present right in your in my present i can i can disagree on something is also taken into account and that's really all you can do and then the decision that is taken as a team should be really as a team you're not going to make people not everyone would be happy all the time that's not going to happen it's a team uh, and the larger the team 
the more compromises and the the less um, contentment you will have as a result because you're trying to make different people you know keep them keep them relatively happy with moving forward uh, with whatever decision you have decided so these are these are issues these are struggles um, but you can only do so much and these are some of the things you can do but as long as you do these aspects I think you're you're on the right track as a leader. So for those of you that don't know what we do here at ITA, so we are a financial transformation consultancy that specializes in Sage Technologies, whether that is looking at a new solution, evaluating your current solution, or just helping you to get the most out of your current setup, we can help. But rather than me tell you all the reasons that you should consider working with us as a Sage partner or a transformation consultancy partner, I'm going to let our customers do the talking for us. ITAS were there from the, from the sort of get-go, helping us, you know, talking through what the process was going to involve, setting expectations, you know, making it clear that how much work we were going to have to put in to make sure that, that the project was a success at, at the at the end. Um, and then talking us through all our different options, looking through our current processes, making us reevaluate what was important, which elements we wanted to um, move across to the new system, how we wanted to configure our new system, and also kind of making us sit, sit back and really think about what is the success of this project. When we get to the other end, when we finish the implementation and, and we're in the system, what's success going to look like? And actually, you know, putting that question back to us and really making us sit down and think about what is it that we that we are looking to gain um, from this whole process was, was really useful internally, making us really think about the key objectives and which areas to maybe prioritise over others. Um, it was also really helpful sitting down and, and thinking about it rather than one big, huge project, actually splitting it down into different phases, um, sort of smaller bite-sized chunks, which made it seem a little bit more achievable um, within the time. Um, and then thankfully, ITAS have been super flexible with us during this process because it, it happened to coincide our implementation with our first ever financial audit, which just took up huge amounts of our time that we didn't expect. So we did have to um, slightly push back some of our go live dates and, and thankfully ITAS were accommodating and, and actually helped us navigate through through that process. And I'd like to say that thankfully we're out the other side of our first days of go live and uh, yeah, loving the move to, to intact. So that statement, almost that goal that you should have as a leader to make the best decision possible given the circumstances. Now, that's a really great goal. So you've obviously mentioned avoiding groupthink. So not allowing groupthink to impact the validity of the decisions that you're making. You've mentioned making sure that people feel like they can be heard and that their voices matter and their thoughts and ideas matter is really important to make sure they continue to speak up and add value to the conversation. Is there anything else that you need in place to be able to make good decisions or to minimize the the potential for making bad decisions? Escalation of commitment. So escalation of commitment is you've made a decision based on available information at the time, time one, T1. And it was a, let's assume it was a good decision. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with the decision, like based on the information that you have. Time goes by, you start getting a new information 
could be something as simple as client feedback on, you know, how the project is going. And you, instead of, you know, shifting course and saying, okay, so let's take this feedback on board and let's move into that direction, which is slightly different than the decision we had set up, um, you know, to engage with at the very beginning, you keep going. And you keep going because of a variety of reasons. One of them is that you don't want to admit to yourself that you were wrong. And you don't want to show the other person that you were wrong, like a client, uh, because, you know, we are, we are very afraid of uh, losing um, anything. Loss aversion is a, is a very real phenomenon. So we don't want to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to show the other person that, look here, I messed up. That was not the right decision. And when I say I, I mean we, okay? It goes both on an individual and, and a team basis. Um, and you don't want to, uh, like you want to make sure you keep believing this ideal self image that you have, right? So ideal self doesn't make mistakes. And so we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep investing, um, for example. So investments are a good, uh, good example here. Um, I used to do this when, uh, you know, teaching like uh, MBA students, you know, um, there's this case study and it's very simple. Like I put people in groups and uh, I tell them you're a finance department of a company. Here's your, here's your case. And the case is very simple is the company has decided to, uh, to provide, a, you know, on company grounds, uh, a crash or a, like a daycare for the employees. And what we'll do is we'll play around. Every round is a month. Uh, in real life, it's five minutes. So we'll play this for 12 months, for one hour. Every five minutes, you'll be asked to make a very easy decision. I mean, very easy as in simplistic. Continue investing in the daycare center or stop investing in the daycare center. You only have two options. It's not about the amount or anything. It's very, very, very simplified. The main point of this, let's call it experiment, is to look at how many teams, if you, let's say you have 100 teams that are playing this all in real time next to each other, right? Um, how many teams will keep going? And what happens is every month they get information. Every month they get a piece of paper that has a table, how many kids are still attending, um, how much money is this thing making, and how much money is it costing us? And the question is very simple. Uh, how many teams will keep going? The information is consistent. Every month the daycare makes a loss. Every month it costs you more to keep it running. Uh, you don't really know why, like not there's very little information, a piece of paper, uh, but you see that the number of children is dropping uh, and um, you see the costs uh, per child are you know, increasing, obviously, because you have less, less children. How many teams keep going in percentage? It's around 65%. Wow. They keep going every month, every five minutes they say, yeah, well, let's keep going. Let's keep going. And then you ask them, right? You ask them after an hour um, because some of them stop. Some of them like one quarter over, like it's ridiculous. Like this makes no yeah. sense. Um, they were going to stop it. And, uh, you know, and they come up with other ways to give uh, parents. Uh, first of all, it's, it's only parents will care about this, right? Number one, which most people don't tend to think about. Um, <laughs> it's like, okay, how many parents do we employ? Like what's the percentage of the overall workforce? So like, does it make sense? And then, so... You know, if, if you're, if you're not a parent, obviously, you know, why are we paying for a daycare? Um, so that's the number one thing that teams that stop it, stop investing, think about. The other thing is we can do something else. We can give them some sort of like, give all parents a credit to go like an extra cash payment or something. And then they can use that to go to a daycare down the street, you know, to another daycare. So. 
But that's not really so interesting. What is more interesting is that what about the teams that keep going? Why in the world would you keep going? Every month you're being told this is wrong. Why do you keep going? Well, it's for the kids. Well, we want to do right for our employees. Well, we start and one of, I remember still, this was years ago, one of them actually said it. Well, we committed to this, so we had to see it through. Right. But you don't. You don't have to see it through. Right. You can stop. Um, and I mean, there's many examples, individual and team basis and, and even on a larger scale, right? I mean, if you look at war, if a country decides to go to war, that's a commitment, right? Yeah. I mean, it's very easy to start a war. It's very difficult to get out of a war. Um, and so, and we saw what happened in, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, last year, you know, you, you can't just, you know, let's, let's call it quits here, you know? Um, it's very difficult to get out of it because you've committed. And now you not only have you lost money, which is, Okay, it's fine. It's just money. You've lost time. You've lost human lives. You can't get that back. That's not coming back. Right. So obviously it doesn't have to be that drastic for a company, but it can be. It can certainly be that drastic. Um, and, um, these are some things that we need to, we need to not just think about, but we need to be aware of in the moment that we can stop. We, we are, we are, we have the right to stop. It doesn't matter so much. What do other people think? You know, why, why do people, uh, what will they think of us? But what is more important is how do we conserve value here? How do we make sure that what comes out of this in the end is actually, you know, what the client wants is actually what makes sense. What is the best possible? And if you realize that a decision you made with the information you had available at the beginning, that was the right decision, right? That's what I said, assuming you made the right decision. It doesn't need to be the right decision a week after, two weeks after, four weeks after, three months after, a year after. It doesn't because you get new information. Use that new information. Don't be afraid uh, to use it. And unfortunately, we are. We are afraid of this. Um, a story that I tell my uh, students on this, because individual example I said earlier as well, it's not just teams, relationships, right? Um, so I had a... Uh, friend of a friend of mine uh, that um, was telling him, so he was telling me about his friend and this is an academic conference we meet every year. So he would meet his colleague every year from overseas. And every year he was telling me he will be complaining about his girlfriend. Year on year on year, like she doesn't let's go out for drinks with my friends, she shorts around the house, whatever it is. Um, and at some point, uh, you know, a few years ago, he, he met him again and he asked him, how are you? How's your girlfriend? And the friend said, oh, we, uh, we got married actually. And my friend asked, well, how come? <laughs> like for seven years, you've been complaining. Well, you know, we have been together for seven years. So I thought it was time. Because, you, I mean, this is a real, like a real life case, you know, like, okay, you are investing uh, money. Okay, you're investing time. Seven years is a long time. Um, but also you're investing a lot of, uh, you know, emotions, obviously. So a lot of feelings. And then the question is, why did you not stop? Like, why did you not, like, both of you must have realized after so much time that this is not work. Well, what will her parents think? Or my parents think? What will our friends think? Right? So, I mean, these are not reasons to stay together. Okay. <laughs> Let me be very frank about this. Um, but this is what people tell themselves. So people will tell themselves whatever it is that they need to tell themselves to justify the decision that they made seven years ago uh, is still the right decision today. But it doesn't have to be. Um, and the same thing with investments, the same thing with, with anything that, you know, requires us to make a decision today. 
and then to uh, to see it through. But you don't actually you decide when that through ends, right? So that is in our control. And that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because that can sometimes be the challenge with people. Not you. If you have that mindset, brilliant. But your team may not have that mindset. They may think that because exactly. I wanted to do this thing at the beginning, I should still want to do it because otherwise yeah. that would mean admitting I'm wrong or admitting that it wasn't the right decision to make potentially. Yeah. So well, how that you're you, inconsistent. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you manage that with your team? Uh, I think it's just a brute force. So basically, <laughs> they need to go through it a few times. Um, yeah. And to, so you can say, look, this is what I meant. Like we made a decision, you argued for it. We decided to go with your decision, like with what you had proposed, but look here, this is the information we're getting. It's not working or it's not working as we expected. We need to adjust and it's okay to adjust. Like, you know, I won't see you any differently because of it, but you need to go through it. Uh, I, I don't think that. You know, intellectually, we're all like nodding along. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I know a lot of people like this. Um, but the problem is we are people, all of us. <laughs> we're, we've all made this, uh, you know, we've all gone through this, you know, at least a few times in our professional lives. And the only way we learn from it is through going through it uh, and, you know, hurting a little bit, like realizing that uh, that was not right. I, I shouldn't have, you know, suggest but that's okay. It's not the end of the world, okay? Um, and that's what employees and leaders, especially, uh, because they're the ones that have to you know, take responsibility and show them, like, look, this is okay. And this can happen to anyone. It's not about you being right or being wrong. I mean, you know, if you think about taking the relationships uh, example, like, if you want to bet on relationships, which I don't uh, encourage either, but to say, okay, well, this won't last. But you can say that about pretty much any relationship because more than 50% of the time, you're going to be right uh, if you look at divorce rates, right? But that doesn't mean you shouldn't get into a relationship. I mean, that's, uh, that's beside the point. You're, you're completely missing the point. So it's not about not making mistakes, but it's about making them and learning from them and adjusting so that they don't become bigger mistakes. Then you don't become, you know, a war you can get out of, or it won't become a seven-year relationship where you know, you're both uh, miserable. Um, and relationships, you know, you can be committed to an organization with a very toxic environment, a toxic working environment. Ah, well, you know, but they uh, gave me the first job after I graduated. And so, you know, I owe my leader a lot and you know, they're still around. And so those are not reasons to keep going. All right. I mean, people do it. I'm not saying there's no evidence. There's plenty of evidence that people keep going and jobs they feel they're absolutely miserable in. But that's not a right reason to keep going. There's not a reason at all. There's actually a reason to stop, to reevaluate, use new information that you have available to you now that you didn't have when you first started uh, and make changes. I mean, make changes doesn't necessarily mean leave the organization, but at least leave the team, right? Ask for job rotation, ask for, for, for something that gets you into a different working environment. So that's very much a, if you've made a decision, you feel like you have to stick with it. How do you yeah. handle the scenario whereby a person doesn't agree with the decision that you've made? Um, and I've seen this a lot in change projects and they subconsciously or consciously try to find 
more reasons to make that decision about one because they still don't believe it was the right one in the first place. I, I, yeah. I don't like to use the term sabotage, but that's sometimes what it can feel like as you go through a project sure. is that they're actively looking for ways for that project to not work is what it yeah. feels like. Whether they are or not is a different story. Yeah, difficult to prove, yeah. Yeah. Um, right, so... This is why I always say behavior is complex. Uh, yeah. It would be simple. I'd be out of a job. So <laughs> it's very, um, we need to, there's a lot of factors here, right? So we've talked a lot about how to make decisions and, and how to, uh, how to uh, work together in teams and so on more effectively. But you have to be fully aware of the fact that that trust I was saying at the beginning as a foundation, uh, some people might not care about that so much. Let me put it that way. So some people will actively, like you said, Hannah, uh, sabotage or manipulate, if you like that word better, I don't know, um, <laughs> uh, the evidence, uh, or so they will, they might even fabricate evidence, um, to convince you that this is not right and you should really go with what they suggest, which is, that's what really what this is about. It's not really about proving you wrong, um, but it's about proving them right, uh, which sometimes can be the same thing. Um, and uh, there's plenty of cases where, especially manager-led teams, which is the vast majority of teams, um, you have a team member who's actively trying to sabotage, see the team leader fail because they want their job. So, like, what's going to happen if 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 I can do it um, so that this project fails, the client is not happy, and keep the blame away from myself as much as possible? then who's going to get the blame? It's always going to be the team leader. But if I have to be very careful in how I manipulate things and, and coerce other people into taking my side over the team leaders so that we don't get blamed as a team, because then you have no team to lead, right? If, if everyone's against you, then you've won nothing, basically. You've conquered a city that's been burnt down to the ground. So that's useless. So you want to make it so that the team leader gets blamed. They're out of that leadership position, and now you're in charge. And now you have access to more resources, you have access to, you know, insights that you didn't have previously and so on. You have more authority, people are more likely to do what you say. So these are certainly aspects that, um, you know, are, are all around us, um, or at least they can be. So luckily, the vast majority of people are not like this, but there are some that are. And it is important to find... Um, especially when you're new to a company, if you're a new leader or if you're new to the team, to find what are called advice ties. So ties, ties with people that can give you advice on how things work around here, who to be careful of, like who to be aware of, and you just, you know, be critical of, like when they speak, like they might have a different agenda. Um, obviously having just one person tell you this, it's not going to be enough because that person might be the person that's trying to manipulate you. Uh, you need several people like this. Um, you need to uh, engage with people, interact with them and, and, you know, take them out to, to lunch, you know, just to meet them because you're new, right? Uh, or they might be new whenever they are new, new to the organization, you know, meet with them um, so that you can relay some information to them as well and A, make them feel welcome, but also uh, look here, there's, there's, this is also what you should know. Uh, or not to present it and not to present anyone in a bad light, but to say that, you know, during the last project, this is what happened. Right. And during another project, you know, maybe even before your time, 
I was told that this is what happened with this particular uh, leader or employee or uh, client maybe as well. So that is information that's difficult to get, but um, it is really important that you A, are aware of it. I think that's the most impactful thing you, you can do. Uh, so just to have thought about it uh, before going into uh, interaction or, or new organization or team, and then to try to make friends essentially, um, but professional friends. So not friends that, you know, again, you would trust your kids, uh, kids with for the afternoon, but, you know, friends as in people that are positively inclined to you that, um, you know, happy to share information with you. Uh, and that's information that's going to be really valuable in trying to help you assess, you know, how to navigate and how to direct your team. So as part of your conflict, um, you're addressing conflict or making good decisions is about understanding the team's motivation whether that's positive yeah. or negative and understanding, like you say, the divides and the ties, where is there previous behaviors that perhaps haven't been as healthy as they should be? Yeah. Um, and what might be influencing the behavior that you're seeing in that room at that time? Yeah. And I mean, now we're down a different uh, uh, track, which is, um, you know, research that I do on like dark tri traits. Um, like people like this that I was mentioning, like that, that you suggested, you know, uh, sabotage and so on. Um, you know, that sounds, uh, quite Machiavellian. Uh, it might be narcissistic, uh, might be psychopathic even. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of research on, on that uh, as it pertains to leaders, because leaders tend to be, unfortunately, uh, many times leaders, uh, our leaders are not the leaders, not the people that are the best representation of the community. Uh, that don't really want to be there, but, you know, are there because they represent the community and, you know, they're, they're, they're there to serve others as servant leader, but rather they're there because they're driven by individual motives. So I want power. I want authority. I want status. How do I get it by becoming a leader? So that's really what I care about. I don't really care about the community I'm representing, but this very much, uh, this is an individual difference. Um, this, this is applicable to anyone. Uh, so we all score, you know, somewhere on, on that, uh, spectrum of narcissistic, Machiavellian, psychopathic. And luckily, most of us don't score very high on it. Um, and that's why these cases are quite isolated, but they are prevalent. They are in any organization. Uh, and, um, it's just a matter of time, um, that, that before you encounter someone like this, if you haven't already. So, um, I, I don't intend to scare my, you know, 18, 20 year old students uh, with this, <laughs> but this is something that they very much need to know about. Um, because if I talk to executives, they, they're the ones telling me the stories. Um, I don't need to tell them that this is what's happening. They're like, no, I know this was happening. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I can't remember whether it was a study or something I read about the prevalence of narcissism and psychopathic behavior in, um, uh, executives at C-suite yeah, level. Psychopathic. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was really interesting. Story, yeah, yeah um, that was a book um, called Snakes and Suits. I don't mm. remember, uh, Bellback, I think, was uh, the one who wrote it, but I might be wrong. I read it a long time ago. Um, yeah, and there's been a lot of research uh, on on these dark tri traits and, uh, and why, because they're so relevant when it comes to, especially working in teams, uh, where you have not just, you know, we're not just a collection of people that are driven by what's best for the team, but don't forget these are individuals. They, they also care about what's best for them. And sometimes, you know, you should never make that assumption as a leader that, 
are your individual goals are aligned with the team goals or even worse with the organizational goals. Even worse because it's a, it's a more macro level. So individual goals, very micro. And then we're moving to team, dyadic, team level, and then macro level. So it's, it's uh, very unlikely that the vast majority of employees are fully aligned um, with uh, organizational uh, values at all times. It's, I mean, it's almost impossible, especially as an organization grows. But it doesn't even have to be that complicated. Just, you know, stick on the, stick to the team level and it already is complex enough, you know, so. Brilliant. And as usual, right, we've run out of yeah. time again on, we, we keep doing this and I keep using it as a great excuse to get you back on again, John. So if we just sum up perhaps the, the key components of um, build, doing, making good decisions, how would you sum up the 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 key attributes or elements of good decision making. Right. So the first one that we discussed, uh, I believe, was in creating an environment where uh, conflict is uh, something that is even encouraged. Most of us say encouraged to realize that most conflict is task conflict, which means that people actively disagreeing is a good thing. Uh, and uh, for you as a leader, you're the one that that has to you know uh, make sure that gets implemented. That is your responsibility. So to create that type of environment first, um, also in terms of uh, getting people on board, having those one-on-ones are really, really crucial. Uh, don't, um, you know, just sometimes in terms of the speed of things, we need to make decisions quickly. We don't really cannot take people's feelings into account and so on. Yeah, yeah, but that's going to come back, uh, you know, to bite you at some point. So uh, do take the time, uh, have at least one-on-one with uh, those two individuals who might be, um, you know, going against each other in terms of their ideas and uh, really try to set the tone from the very beginning uh, and also to make sure that you take on board new information uh, as it comes along. Don't just stick with the decision that you made. Uh, keep thinking that you have to stick it through. You have to stick it out. Um, no, you don't have to. Uh, you can stop and you should stop many times in order to preserve value for your team and for your clients and for yourself, frankly, mental <laughs> clarity on things is very important as well. Um, so make sure that escalation of commitment is minimized uh, and never assume that uh, individual motives are aligned with team motives at all times. So be aware of people that um, you know might be trying to, let's say, not do what is absolutely best for the team at all times. And we all have a personal agenda. Um, but most of the time it is in alignment with the team because if the team does well, I do well, usually, um, more promotion and things like that, but it doesn't necessarily, um, mean that it's always like this for everybody. So try to get information, try to make connections with people, uh, who've been there longer than you try to meet new people as they come into your team. Uh, not only does it show that you value them, that you welcome them, but also, um, information they might be otherwise might be impossible to get to otherwise is also communicate to them. A fantastic summary. I think you literally covered our hours podcast in a few short minutes there. Yeah, I hope Thank I didn't yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, if you're listening to this and you have a question around, particularly around behavior, around how we manage change, how we lead during change, then as our listeners, if you have questions, do reach out. I'm happy to, to, to be guided by you. And I want to say thank you again to John for coming back on because um, it's always really insightful having you on talking about the science behind leadership, behind change and behind behavior. So thank you, John. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me, Hannah. Yeah, pleasure to be here. And uh, who knows, we might do this again at some point. <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's see, yeah. All right. Thanks so much. Hey, Google. What's the best accounting software for my business? Give it a couple of years, and I'll bet you she'll be able to answer you pretty accurately. But for now, it's still one of the few questions Google can't give you an answer for. But we can. Take our free quiz and find out which Sage product is the right fit for your business. Just head to itassolutions.co.uk.